you're new around here or you're watching online, I want to welcome you again. My name is Ben. I'm pastor here at Strong Tower. We're glad that you can be with us. We're going to be in James chapter 1 this morning if you want to grab your Bibles. I'm trying to get there myself. James chapter 1. And as you're turning there, just a reminder, as John was just saying, uh, we do have grow classes starting tonight for the men and Thursday for the women. It's the same resource that we're using. It's called Emotionally Healthy uh, Discipleship or Spirituality, actually, I think. Uh, but it's a fantastic book thinking about how do we go deep in our spirituality as we think about Jesus and the gospel, applying it to our life. And particularly during this time in the pandemic where many of us are struggling, whether it's emotionally or spiritually or financially, whatever it may be, I think this study will be incredibly impactful for those that, that take part in it. It'll be six weeks and uh, really, really helpful. So. If you haven't signed up, please do that. You can do that on our website under classes, okay? All right, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. Hear the reading of God's Word. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, doing done right. Doing done right. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, uh, we're thankful for your grace this morning that you woke us up to see and enjoy another day with you. And we pray, God, as we have gathered together, whether it's online in our living room or in the car as we're listening or right here in the building together, uh, we ask that your spirit would show up wherever we find ourselves. We ask that you would show up and speak to us in the scriptures to help us know more of who you are. And we would look deep into the mirror, as James says, and see who we are, but not run away, but run towards you. Run towards you, the one who loves us and cares for us. We pray you would change us into that image the image of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, out of 26,639 contestants in the 2016 Boston Marathon, uh, a lady by the name of Fran Draws came in 26,639th, dead last. She was running in this marathon race and and it wasn't her first race. She had been actually in 75 marathons. Get this, she was 72 running in the Boston Marathon in 2016. And she's running in this race, and, and she's so far behind everybody that, that no one really even knows where she is. Her husband was actually waiting for her at the finish line with a medal to you know, celebrate with her and some flowers. And 
and when he, he, starts to get, he starts to get worried because people are starting to pack up and he still hasn't seen his wife. The workers are tearing down the barricades and, and it's past eight o'clock. She comes strolling across the finish line or what used to be the finish line. It's gone now at 8.50 at night. And most people would say, what in the world was she doing running a marathon at 72? Well, it wasn't what she was doing. It was why she was doing it. She was running this marathon because her husband was battling cancer for the third time in his life. He's battling cancer and, and she's trying to give him hope, trying to do something that would maybe encourage him and, and bring life to his spirit. And she also wanted to raise money for cancer research and maybe bring some hope to other families who were like their families battling cancer. And so when she crosses the finish line, her husband wasn't thinking, oh man, you did terrible, you're in last place. He's excited because it wasn't the what, it was the why. See, many times when we're doing things, especially hard things, the why is just as important as the what. I mean, it, it's sometimes where you could have the right what and have the wrong why and you'll still ruin it. Just ask your spouse. I mean, just ask. Just go home today, and maybe your sink is full of, of dishes that you forgot to do last night or after breakfast this morning or whatever, and, and you go to the sink to do dishes, and, and you offer it as what you maybe perceive as, as help, but then you start you know, murmuring under your breath, and you're complaining. You're clanging dishes in the sink, and, and you're complaining the whole time to the point that, I mean, let's be honest, you weren't really doing it out of love. You were doing it out of guilt or duty or maybe to manipulate them for something. Or maybe ask your coworker. And, and you're at work and, and, and one of your coworkers, you could tell she's just swamped with her to-do list and you offer to take some things off her plate and help her. And next thing you know, a couple of days go by and you've done a few things for her and you, you know, drop a little hint at the boss that you're picking up some slack on the team. And the boss starts to realize that she's maybe not doing what she's supposed to be doing. Now, were you doing it for her or for yourself? You see what I'm saying? Like, you could have the right what, you're doing something, maybe it looks good, it feels good, but it's not really good because why you're doing it is not why you should be doing it. See, doing good can actually go wrong. And this is what James is trying to bring out as we come to this text today. He's, he's helping us to see that the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus, actually transforms our why, not just the what. And so as we continue this series, maybe you're joining with us for the first time today. We're about three weeks in, and, and we're going to spend most of the fall going through this letter of James. And we've been looking at this theme of how uh, we're, we want a faith that works, not a faith that feels good or, or a faith that looks good or seems good, but a faith that actually works. And so James is talking about this faith, and, and you start getting into the letter and you start realizing this letter is extremely practical. I mean, some people call James the Proverbs of the New Testament. There's short, pithy sayings, things that you can put into practice and, and you can do on Monday morning. You know, it's the type of thing that people in America especially really like because we like pragmatism. So James has become famous for that, but there's this danger. You get into James and you start looking at all these to-dos, these commands, and you can get going doing and doing it all wrong. And so James, before we get too much further, starts to tell us what it looks like to do right well. 
So there's three distinct ways of doing I want to look at this morning. The first, if you're taking notes, is legalism. Legalism. Look at verse 19. Look, look at what James says. He says, Know this, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, this is one of the most famous verses in James. Everybody loves that. But then look at what he says. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, James is, is showing this an interesting connection between our words and our anger. And he says the connection between our words and our anger is what he calls a desire to produce a righteousness. In other words, uh, what it means is, you know, you want to do good or you want someone else to do good, and so you use words, right? You say, do this, don't do this, this is how you should do it, this is how fast you should do it, this is how you should build it, whatever, right? You start using words, and then lots of words, and then you notice it's not getting better, and so you start using more words, and then you start to get angry. Why can't they just do it like I told them to do it? Why can't they think like I, can't, like I think? Why, why can't they do what I say when I tell them to do it? You ever, you ever had that where this, this anger building up in you towards other people who don't seem to do what you want them to do on the timetable that you want them to do it? And then you turn it towards yourself. You get frustrated with yourself. I, I can't seem to do the things I want to do. I can't seem to make the changes in my life that I keep wanting to make. I can't seem to make the progress I want to make. And so this anger births up within us. And James says this anger is an unrighteous anger. Right? There is such a thing as a righteous anger. This is unrighteous anger. It's, it's a self-righteous control that I'm going to try to put on somebody else with my words. And James says you are trying to produce righteousness, and that's not how righteousness happens. He says the righteousness of God happens differently. Look at verse 21. He tells us how. Look, he says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. I love that, that that's what he calls our self-righteousness. We don't really think of it as rampant wickedness. But, but he says, put away the filthiness and rampant wickedness. And listen, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Did you catch the contrast? He's saying in the first part, you're trying to do, do, do through your words, through your actions, through your persuasion. And it's not going to produce the righteousness you're after. But here's how you get it. You receive. You do nothing. He says you receive the implanted word. The implanted word there is, is an image for the gospel, the good news of Jesus that God implants in you by faith. He, he puts this word in you that, plant, or that grows up and flourishes. He says anger is all about discontentment. It's never enough. Do more, do better, do faster. And listen, there's a biblical word for that kind of self-righteousness. It's called legalism. Legalism is doing without hearing. Legalism is doing without receiving what we need to receive. Right? All of us maybe have heard the common question, probably today even, whether it was uh, you know, at church, if you came to church, or sometime during your week, how are you doing? Right? It's a common greeting in our culture, how you doing? And you've probably heard, maybe even today, the common response, which is, oh, I'm doing fine, just busy. You hear that? 
oh, I'm, I'm doing great, nothing new, just busy. You ever notice how much we say that? Just busy? Like, it's this badge of honor that, that if, if you tell somebody, I mean, think about this. You ask them, how are you doing? And they say, oh, not much going on. I'm just, you know, sitting in my pajamas all day, watching Netflix and catching up on naps and walks. What, what kind of response is that? Like, we, we've got this badge of honor that you have to be busy to be worthy. I actually came across this uh, reading the other day that it, it was telling me about uh, the, the concept of busy, and, and they were using this illustration of, of the Chinese pictograph for the word busy. Apparently, the Chinese pictograph for busy is actually two pictures brought together. The first one is for your heart, and the second picture is for death. And you bring those two pictures together, and it makes the word busy. Now, isn't that so different than how our American badge of busyness functions. But isn't it true? I mean, imagine someone asks you, how are you doing? Oh, just killing my heart. Just absolutely doing violence to my soul. I mean, isn't that what's happening? We're just going, 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 and you're asking, what does that have to do with legalism? Everything. Here's why. Legalists, catch this, legalists are busy doing all kinds of good things for all the wrong reasons. Legalists are out trying, in James's language, to, to build a righteousness, to, to, to pursue a righteousness, to, to build something up that proves that I'm good and someone else isn't as good. And we can do it in all kinds of ways. You, you can have all kinds of righteousnesses. You can have uh, political righteousness where you're out there trying to prove to everybody else your position is the only right position. You can have parenting righteousness. You're out there trying to prove on social media that the way you parent on your posts are just perfect. You can have tolerance righteousness where you can prove, you're, you're out there busy proving that you are open-minded beyond everybody else who's narrow-minded. You can have job righteousness at your workplace, busy trying to prove that you are more competent than what people think you are. I mean, the options are, are limitless for legalism, but, but this is what James is getting at, that you are trying to produce something. You're trying to hand over something that you can say, I'm proud of this, I've done this, and look at how amazing I am, and I'm busy, busy building it. I mean, ask yourself as we're talking about this this morning, what are you trying to produce? What kind of righteousness are you busy with? Because whatever it is for you, it's killing you. And it's making you angry. Angry. There's a theologian named John Gerstner. I love this quote. I've probably said it a few times uh, with you guys before. But he says this. He says, The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins... It's your damnable good works. You catch that? He says the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's it's your damnable good works. Now that sounds odd to the legalist. Because to the legalist, it, it sounds like that's not Christianity. I thought Christianity was all about doing good. I thought Christianity was about making a difference in the community. I thought Christianity was about being a good parent. I thought Christianity was about having a, a wonderful marriage. I, I thought Christianity was putting on this face of happiness all the time. How, how, could, how could doing good works be damnable? 
but you don't understand Christianity. Christianity is not about the good works that you do. There's actually a kind of goodness that requires repentance. See, there's many people who wouldn't believe in Christianity that wouldn't repent of anything. And that's understandable. If you don't believe in Jesus, why would you repent? Why would you come to Christ? It doesn't make sense. But if you are calling yourself a Christian, many are just stuck at the legalism stage of Christianity where you only repent of the obvious sins. You repent of the big things. And so you're not really aware of how much sin is really going on in your heart. But the deeper you go in the Christian faith, you start to realize that real Christians, true Christians who are growing in their faith, also repent of their righteousness. That means we we repent of trying to produce something that we were never designed to produce. We're not able to produce. Some of you have been doing so much good, but without any receiving from God, you're just busy doing, 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 and you're so angry about it. Because it takes humility to hear. This is what James is saying. It takes humility to hear, to slow down, to stop trying to do for just a moment and just receive. You hear what he says? He says, with meekness. Just just receive from God his love. Receive from God his goodness. Be Be reminded once again that he cares for you. He loves you. He's with you. He hasn't abandoned you. Be reminded once again that he's in control of whatever your circumstance be. Be reminded that he has given himself over for you. To just receive. James says that that takes humility. But that's what's required when we do. When the gospel begins to shape our doing, we we start repenting of our doing without him. But then there's this opposite problem, and this is where he goes next, is license. The the opposite of legalism is license. Look at verse 22. He says, but, so just so y'all are not off the hook here, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. I love this because James is is catching all of us in the room. He's saying there's one side of danger where It's legalism, and it's all about doing, 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 and you never receive from God, and and you're trying to earn God's approval, and you're trying to produce something so God will be happy. And then the opposite side is you do nothing. You do nothing because either you think God is, you know, fine with you doing nothing, or you think it's too much, and why even try? What's what's the point of trying to live for God? I'm I'm just going to do my thing, live my life. I can't live up to that standard. He compares it with this interesting... Uh, analogy. He says, it's like a person who looks in a mirror. Now, you got to pause for a second and understand their world, right? It's just for a moment, understand it's not 2020 when he's saying this. They didn't have photos. They didn't have Instagram accounts. They, they didn't have, I mean, most people, unless you were super wealthy, didn't have paintings of themselves. Even the, even the most common people didn't have mirrors. And the ones that did didn't have very high quality images on that mirror. And so it was actually very rare that you would get a glimpse of your own image. And so just imagine for a second his logic here. What he's saying is, if you finally have the opportunity to have a a glimpse into a mirror where you can see yourself for who you really are, and then you walk away, 
and you forget everything you saw and you do nothing about it. He's saying that's what license is. It's the sense of, I get a glimpse into, into what's really happening in my life, what's happening in my heart, but then it's too much, and I walk away. I can't handle it. See, see license is, is hearing, it's receiving, but then not doing. It's, it's hearing without doing. I was reading recently about a, uh, a group of South Koreans who had created this thing that probably most people would not think of because they think of prison. Most, most people think of prison as a place you escape from. But they have designed a prison where you want to escape to. This couple, they're, they're a married couple that are business executives, and they were putting in about 100 hours a week, ridiculous, in their, in their workplace. And, and they got so burnt out, they quit their jobs, and they decided, we're going to create this place where other burnout people can come and just be there. And we're going to call it the prison inside me. I mean, this is real. You go check it out. The prison inside me. Now, I don't know how it's working in COVID, but uh, the, the prison inside me. And they design it to look like a prison, to feel like a prison. And you pay $90. You pay $90 to go spend 24 hours in solitary confinement. No phone, no email, no calendar, no other people. They give you a, a blue prison uniform and a notepad, a pen, and a yoga mat. And you're just there by yourself. And as I was reading this article that was describing this crazy idea, that they're interviewing these inmates, right? Quote, unquote, inmates. And the first one said, I would rather go into solitary confinement than live this life I live. The next person said, I realized that this isn't actually a prison. The real prison is where I return. In other words, they, they were desperate to escape the pain of their life. See, I think, I think spiritual escapism is rampant in the church. It's a form of license. In other words, we respond to the burden that we perceive that this life is to live for God, and we just throw our hands up and say, I can't do it anymore. We respond to the burden that is to look at the pain in our life and the sin in our heart and the sin in our world and the injustice in our community. It's too much, and so I just give up. I, I throw up my hands. I, I don't want to do it anymore. And so we numb ourselves with platitudes and language like, oh, I'm just, I'm just a broken person, and we're just a broken family, and at some point along the way, we just gave up. We just checked out. We're, we're numb to it. We numb ourselves with... Netflix, we numb ourselves with social media, we numb ourselves with alcohol, whatever it is, but we find something that can just push down what we are seeing so we can walk away. We give our attention to problems out there so that no one, including us, knows the problems in here. And yet, the gospel, listen to me carefully, the gospel, it calls us to self-reflection to the hard work of, of looking into the mirror, and, and as James says, to persevere in that. Not to look for just a glance and then say, oh, that's, that's just too scary, I can't deal with that, but to persevere and say, I'm going to look long enough to see what's really going on, and I'm going to do something about it. I mean, when was the last time, when was the last time you took an inventory of your heart? You just slow down and, and you just ask yourself, why am I so anxious? Why am I so angry at that coworker? Why, why am I so stressed out at night and I can't seem to sleep? Why, why am I so busy all the time and I can't seem to slow down and rest and enjoy my family? Why, why are these things happening? 
When was the last time you asked yourself that and you, you really did some self-reflection? And then James says the next step is to then act. Right? It doesn't stop with self-reflection, but he says you've got to then do something. You've got to act upon that, which is repentance. Right? Repentance, the word literally means to turn. It means you were going one direction, and now you're going another direction. Repentance is a direction. It's not necessarily a feeling. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, a state of spirituality. That doesn't mean all of a sudden your problems are gone or that you're intimately close with God. It just means you have stopped going this way. Now you're going towards Jesus. And so James is saying, when you look in the mirror and you see, man, I've got an idol of comfort and ease. I need to turn from it. I've got an idol of of power and influence at my job, I need to turn from it. I've got an idol of control in my family life, I need to turn from it. You see that? He's saying that the licentious person is the person who's given up on God being able to change us. And he's saying there's hope if you'll look long enough and then you'll turn. And this is where he goes next in how that turn happens. Uh, he says there's one more thing. You have to be liberated by love. And this is the third point, love. Look at verse 25. I love what he says here. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and he perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Listen, he will be blessed in his doing. So now he carries on this analogy of looking, right? In the beginning, it was, it was the analogy of the mirror. You look into the mirror, and, and now he's saying, just like the mirror, you look into the law. Now, the law was the Old Testament word that meant the whole Scripture. It was summarizing all of what God gives to us, His will, right? But he calls it something strange here, maybe for you. He calls it the law of liberty. That might seem odd because you probably think law of liberty. What what kind of freedom is there in a law? I thought a law was about restrictions or constraining. I I thought laws meant that you can't do something. Well, that's because we don't understand freedom. See, we think of freedom as the absence of constraints in our culture. I want my freedom. I want my liberty. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. But that's not biblical freedom. Biblical freedom is not the absence of constraints, It's the presence of the right constraints. Think about it with a a fish for a second. You know, if you've got a fish swimming in water, you pull that fish out of water, that's not more freedom for that fish. That fish is less free because it can't breathe. It was designed to flourish in the constraints of water. In the same way, God is saying, you as a human being, you were designed to live in the constraints of my law because this is the perfect law that represents my loving heart. Right? His law is just his love put into words. It's his will, the will of his heart put down for us to know. And he's saying, this freedom that I have for you, this liberty that I have for you, isn't a freedom from everything. It's a freedom for something. Specifically, it's a freedom to love. It's a freedom to do out of that love. So you're receiving love so that you can then do love. Or to put it another way, love actually liberates us to both hear and do. Love liberates us to hear and do. We see this in Luke chapter 7. Jesus, uh, if you know the story, Jesus is at Simon the Pharisee's house. And and, uh, this is an interesting scene because the Pharisees 
weren't necessarily friendly towards Jesus, right? The Pharisees were self-righteous, they were arrogant, they were the elitist in the culture, but all the, the common people looked up to them. They, they dreamt of one day, maybe I could be a Pharisee. The, these were the people that everybody in the community thought highly of, but they didn't like Jesus, yet they invited Jesus over for dinner. And so Simon brings Jesus over for dinner. Everybody's sitting around the table, and, and you know he's sitting with all these, you could call legalistic people in the Pharisees. And in comes this woman. Now the Bible describes her as a woman of the city. It was a euphemism for she's a prostitute. She, she was out on the streets. And she walks into this room, and, and you have this contrast here where you have the legalistic Pharisees, and now you have this licentious prostitute woman. And when she comes in, it's even more shocking what she does. She lays down at the feet of Jesus. She begins to weep, and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears. She anoints his feet with oil. And she, in all senses, worships Jesus in front of of all these religious leaders. Now, not everybody was excited. Simon speaks up. He interrupts the scene. The, the tension is thick in the air. You, I mean, people's imaginations are wondering, why does Jesus know this woman? How, how are they friends? Why is Jesus friends with a prostitute? And the Bible says that Simon's actually thinking in his head. He's thinking, uh, you know, this guy can't be a prophet. He must be a fraud. Prophets, prophets don't hang out with prostitutes. And Jesus knows Simon's thoughts, and Jesus says this. He says, Simon, I, I got a little story for you. He says there were two people who both had a debt that they owed to this man. One guy owed $7,000. The other guy owed $70,000. He said both guys, they couldn't pay the debt, and it got so bad, the man who, who was in charge, he, he decided to just forgive both. He said, Simon, who do you think will love the man better? Now, Simon knew he was caught. He knew this was, this was a setup. This question was getting at the man, or, or Simon and the woman, and he knew he was caught, but in front of all the people, what's he going to do? And so he answers Jesus kind of sheepishly. He says, well, I suppose the man who was forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, you've got it. And then he turns to the woman, and he's still speaking to Simon. He turns to the woman, and he says, do you see this woman? He says, Simon, I came in this house, and you didn't care for me at all. I came in here, and you didn't do anything. You didn't give me water to wash my feet, and yet she washed my feet with her tears. You didn't greet me with the, the standard kiss on the cheek, but she's been kissing my feet since we've been here. Simon, you didn't anoint my head like you do for guests she anointed even my feet. He said, Simon, this woman has put you to shame with her love for me. And then he says, why? This is so powerful. He says, here's why, Simon, because those who are forgiven little love little, but those who are forgiven much love much. In other words, this woman has, has realized the depths of her sin and she's been forgiven so greatly that all she can do is pour herself out in love. But you don't realize what you see in the mirror. And so your capacity to love is much smaller. Or to put it another way, our ability to love comes from our experience of love. 
The more you receive the love of God, the more you can give the love of God. That's how freedom works. That's how true liberty works in our life. That Jesus comes into this this earth, this this world, to to liberate us by His love. He he was always doing what was right, rightly. In other words, he, He said He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. To fulfill it, right? He was God's law of love lived out perfectly as he walked among us. He fulfilled it when he loved the legalistic leaders rather than give up on them. He fulfilled it when he was patient with suffering sinners who were caught in the trap of their misery. He fulfilled it when he slowed down to be with his father rather than do life disconnected from him. He fulfilled it when he chose not to serve himself, but to serve his enemies, even going to the cross for them. He fulfilled it when he endured in the face of hell itself until he came out victorious. See, the good news of the gospel is that we have a a Savior who has fulfilled the law so that lawbreakers like us can still be liberated. Can still be liberated for what? To love. To love. See, there is freedom in loving from his love. If you're a Christian, if you name Christ, you you don't have to love for His love. You already have His love. Your your doing isn't for earning a place. Your doing isn't about changing anyone else. Your doing isn't even about proving yourself or your faith. Your doing flows only from the love that you have received. A debt that was so outrageous you couldn't pay it was paid for you. A life that was so beautiful you couldn't live it was lived for you. And when you stare into that kind of love, the love of Jesus for us, it liberates you. It liberates you from the trap of legalism. It liberates you from the despair of licentious living. It liberates you so that you can love God and love people the way you were designed to flourish. And so as we close, I want to ask you, how is the gospel shaping your doing today? How is the gospel shaping your doing Jesus came to liberate us to love, to love. And maybe if, if you're here this morning watching or here in the building, you're, you're caught up in, in this moment, you've been sucked into the trap of legalism and you're on that, that road. You're just doing, doing, doing. You're busy, 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 and it's killing your soul. Jesus is calling you back. Or maybe you're here this morning and and you've given up in despair. You stopped doing because it it just seems impossible to do anyways. What's the point? My life is a wreck. It's a mess. Jesus is calling you back to say, I can liberate you so you can love. Wherever you find yourself today, let's, let's go to him as he's calling us to himself. Let's pray. Father, we we come to you with hearts that are eager to receive. Lord, I've been amazed thinking about this passage this week of how I often get the the order wrong. I'll try to do so I can receive rather than just sit and receive so that I can do. God, help us to, to begin where you want us to begin, that we would begin with the humility to stop and to receive, to live within the limitations of our own humanity, to live within the limitations of time and energy and and space, that that we would just say, God, I, I can't do it all. I need you to do in me. I need you to work in me. I need you to implant the gospel in my life so that it might grow and flourish 
into the good works that bring glory to your name. Lord Jesus, I ask that wherever people find themselves this morning, that your Holy Spirit would show up and call us back to yourself, just like you called Simon, just like you called the woman at the table. You don't abandon any of us. You call us to yourself. And so Lord, I pray you would open our ears to hear and to not just hear, but to do, to come to you. We pray in Jesus' name.